Hello and welcome to MedTalk, a medical revision podcast for medical students by medical students. My name is Melissa and I'm a final year medical student at UWA. On today's episode, we are going to be discussing an approach to hearing loss. Hearing loss is a very important topic. It will affect virtually all Australians at some point in their life and is really important for medical students to understand. To help us with this topic, we have a special guest, Professor Peter Friedland. Prof Friedland is an ENT surgeon at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital and Joondalup Health Campus and has over 25 years experience in Australia and in Africa. Prof Friedland's special interests include otology, cochlear implants, chronic ear disease, hearing loss and rehabilitation, paediatric ENT, endoscopic sinus surgery, and voice and swallowing disorders. Prof Friedland is a professor in the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences at UWA and a professor in the School of Medicine at the University of Notre Dame in Fremantle. Thank you so much for joining us, Prof Friedland. It's such a pleasure and um, I welcome the opportunity. Thank you. So I think we'll get started with a case study. So we'll introduce our patient and then as we go through the case, we'll discuss an approach to hearing loss and some of the um, issues that we need to consider around the case. So our patient today is Mr. Costanza. He's a 62-year-old male who's presented to his GP with suspected hearing loss. So before we go any further, what would you like to know about uh, the presenting complaint with a patient who's presenting with hearing loss? So there are a number of approaches that I would employ when I interview a patient who's presenting with a hearing loss. Um, firstly, one would want to know whether it's in both ears, uh, bilateral, or in one ear, unilateral. And then, of course, you want to know the timeline of the hearing loss. Is this a very sudden onset of hearing loss, or is this a progressive hearing loss over a long a period of time? And then, based on whether you know those two parameters, then you'd want to know um, how bad the actual hearing loss is. And um, I use an approach that um, follows the anatomy of the ear. I think that's the easiest because when you think of what the causes of the hearing loss can be, then you ask your questions appropriately and you can work it out. You don't need to have an iPhone with you and you don't need to have Wikipedia there. Yep. So I would say, what are the causes of hearing loss that involve the outer ear, the middle ear and the inner ear and ask my questions appropriately. So, so for example, in the outer ear, could it simply be wax? Common things happen commonly and a lot of people get blocked ears because of wax. Or they could have recently been swimming and get water in the ear that expands the wax or they get an infection in the ear, they've scratched their canal, secondary otitis externa. A child may have a hearing loss, uh, a foreign body in the ear. And then you go through to what the middle ear may be, could that be a middle ear infection, could it be a perforation, have they suddenly dived, have they been traveling, have they had an upper respiratory tract infection, have they had any trauma, and then lastly, what I would ask about is whether there's any associated other symptoms of the inner ear, for example, ringing or dizziness or vertigo. So he said that his hearing loss has probably, probably been getting worse for a while now, but he's really been noticing it over the last several months. And he's been having a lot of difficulty following conversations with people, uh, particularly when he's in like a crowded restaurant or at a bar or another venue. 
Uh, he said that he can hear people, but some of the words don't really make sense to him. So he's also concerned that maybe he's had a stroke or something else is going on. Uh, he said that both ears are about the same. Uh, he also said that he's had no ear pain. He's had no otorrhea, so no discharge from the ear. He's had no ringing or tinnitus and no vertigo or dizziness. So that's kind of the main presenting complaint that we've got from him. Is there anything else you want to know about his history given that presenting complaint? I think, you know, he's given us a lot of information. You'd also want to know, and I think based on that, we can actually make a diagnosis. Um, but you would also want to know about what his occupation was and what he did recreationally as well in terms of noise exposure and whether he's been exposed to any ototoxic drugs and whether he's had any kind of trauma to his head or he has any other you know, underlying conditions and certainly his medications. In that regard, we've got some more history from him. So he does have hypertension and high cholesterol. So he's taken an ACE inhibitor and a statin. He hasn't really been taking any other medications, um, no significant illnesses. So I think on that basis, there's probably no ototoxic drugs in his history. Yes, but I do think that um, when you're taking antihypertensives and you're taking um, lipid-lowering drugs, they all affect the vasculature. And the vasculature, particularly the microscopic um, vas vasculature to the cochlea and to, to the cochlea and to the inner ear, very important. And people can develop hearing loss related to uncontrolled hypertension and certainly to hyperlipidemia. Okay, so he does, he does say that he sees his GP regularly and that those, his hypertension and high cholesterol are fairly well managed. So would we be less concerned that they'd be a cause then? Absolutely. You asked further about his occupation and his interests. You find out that when he was in his 20s and late teens, he did play in a rock band. Uh, they did gigs a few nights a week for about a decade and he never really wore hearing protection back then. So I think on that basis, maybe we're a bit more concerned about some noise exposure. Absolutely. So I think you, with this idea, with this background from the patient, you've got two very clear diagnoses of what is causing his progressive ongoing hearing loss. The first one is age-related hearing loss. He's 62 years old. We know that men start losing their hearing far sooner than women, at least five to 10 years before. And it's a natural progression. We're born with a certain amount, a fixed finite amount of inner hair cells in our cochlea, about 1,500 of them. And unlike other mammals and chickens, etc., who regenerate these hair cells, once ours are lost or damaged, they're not regenerated. And presbycusis, which is age-related hearing loss, essentially starts in men from about the age of 45 to 55 and certainly by the age of 60 at least 50 percent of men complain of hearing loss and by 75 75 percent um, com complain of a form of hearing loss and um, what's interesting is that this hearing loss doesn't start in the low frequencies it starts in the very high frequencies so if you look at your audiogram it goes it looks completely normal, and then there's a ski slope where it falls off. That's number one. The second cause of his um, hearing loss is probably his noise exposure. Ten years in a rock band without any um, um, ear protection is pretty severe. And generally how we judge um, noise exposure that's toxic to our ears is based on three principles. Firstly, it's the loudness in decibels, and 
banging away with an electric guitar and drums and cymbals and other instruments very, is very, very loud. Number two is how close you are to the, the noise. And in a rock band, you're pretty close. And number three is the length of exposure to that noise. Is it for a couple of hours? Is it for a minute? Is it for five minutes? And so the combination of those three factors are really important. And so what um, Mr. Costanza has is he has age-related hearing loss, which is normal wear and tear, but then he's got accelerated wear and tear from his um, uh, recreational noise exposure over time. And it doesn't manifest immediately. If you've been to a rock concert, concert or you've had very loud noise exposure, how the ear responds is that the hair cells are paralyzed for a short period of time and your ear feels blocked. And you say, wow, I can't hear. And usually your hearing comes back. The length of time that your hearing is blocked indicates how much damage you've had to your ears. And um, I think that's been the problem with it. So that's that feeling you have the next day where your ears just don't feel a bit right. That's correct. The damage is already that's been done. That's called a threshold shift mm. where the, the, the inner hair cells are just shocked. They've been vibrating so much that they're in a state of paresis and you hope that they'll recover. Sometimes they don't. And a lot of research these days is on what can we do to regenerate hair cells. Uh, a lot of stem therapy, a lot of uh, intracochlear uh, medication, corticosteroids, etc., various drug vectors to get in through the blood-brain barrier into the cochlea is aimed at trying to restore these precious hair cells. So we suspect that Mr. Costanza probably has presbycusis and exacerbated by noise exposure over his lifetime, which could be causing his hearing loss. Uh, I assume we still want to do an examination and what would we be looking for on an Absolutely do an examination because you may be completely surprised. First of all, every examination is inspection, palpate, and then auscultate if you're going to listen for any brewies. And when I put auscultation in, I mean tuning fork tests. Um, and so the first thing is one would just generally look at his ears, make sure that they look completely normal, palpate the mastoid, palpate the area behind the ears, check that there are no scars, that he's had no operations that he's not telling you about. And then on, on um, otoscopy, looking inside the ear, just check that the ear canal looks good. Look at the eardrum. Usually in a 62-year-old, you may get a, a grayish, dullish eardrum, much like gray hair on the head. It may not be as transparent as you expect. I would make sure that it's completely intact. I would ask the patient to valsalva, in other words, block their nose, block their mouth, and blow out air, and that will go through the nose, through the eustachian tube, and you may see the drum move backwards and forwards and his ears pop. And then I would do tuning fork tests. And in a patient like this, I would expect his tuning forks to be normal. Rene positive bilaterally, air conduction better than bone conduction. And when you do the Weber test, it should either be central well, often when they're 62, they can't hear the frequency through the skull, and they'll tell you they can't hear it at all, as long as it doesn't localize to one ear. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and following on that, um, you may want to do some investigations. And the first, the very first investigation you'd want to do would be um, an audiogram.
Okay, so we do an examination on Mr. Costanza. He, we do a whisper test. He can't hear at about 60 centimetres, but he can hear softly spoken words. On inspection and palpation of the external ear, we don't identify any abnormalities. On otoscopy, the tympanic membrane is intact. The light reflex is present. It is slightly greyed, but there's no erythema, no scarring, bulging or retractions. He's Renee positive bilaterally. Uh, the Weber test, he's not entirely sure, but he doesn't feel like it's localising to one ear in particular. So that's fairly in line with what we expected based on his history. So we would now refer him for an audiogram, is that correct? And Absolutely. Yep. And the kind of audiogram that I think is really important is not just a screening air conduction audiogram. You'd like him to have a full audiogram, which is a pure tone audiogram with speech discrimination. When we do an audiogram, and if you've all got the opportunity to sit in, in a soundproof booth, we give beeps and tones at various different um, frequencies and decibels to the patient to identify. And those are important and they give us an indication of where a, a, a patient's pure tone average is. In other words, where they hear three main av uh, frequencies in hertz. But we don't spend our life listening to beeps and tones. We, we, we listen to music and we're social human beings. Speech is so important. And so doing a speech discrimination test with the audiogram is vital so that we can understand how much speech you can hear and what words you can hear at normal conversation frequencies. Okay, so we do refer him to an audiologist and he has a formal audiogram. The audiogram does show bilateral symmetrical hearing loss, which is worse at the higher frequencies. Now, what are the treatment options for Mr. Costanza here? Well, there's several treatment options. And before we embark on treatment options, I, I would explain to the patient what's actually happening, that this is a natural progression of hearing loss, that it's likely to progress further, that his symptoms are completely normal, and that I would reassure him that they are not indicative of the stroke that he's worried about. The reason he can't understand speech is a very typical and very common complaint with people who've got presbycusis or high-frequency hearing loss. In the low frequencies, the low frequencies are responsible for the power and the noise of speech and the background noise and the vowels. The high frequencies are responsible for the consonants and the s and the th and the F and the G and the H that put the meaning to the vowels. So typically, Mr. Constanza can hear conversation and he hears noise, but he can't hear the consonants because he's lost his hearing to put meaning to those words. So oftentimes he guesses and in a quiet environment he gets it correct, but in a noisy background environment he doesn't stand a chance. And I would explain to Mr. Costanza that this is the reason. I would also explain to Mr. Costanza that it usually takes males about seven to ten years before they decide to do anything about the hearing. And unfortunately, if you don't use it, you lose it. And we need our ears to hear, but we need our brains to listen and interpret the sound. 
Or you can say you need your ears to listen, but you need your brain to hear. And it's one thing hearing in his, in his head, but the stimulation of his brain is very, very important. And I would encourage him to have a trial of hearing aids. I think that's the most important management in this case. So would you explain to him that if he, if he didn't wear his hearing aids or trial the hearing aids, then he could expect possibly worse decline than if he used the hearing aids? Yes, I certainly do. Um, patients are generally in a state of denial. And they often think that their hearing isn't as bad as their partner or their children or grandchildren make it out. But in actual fact, it's very frustrating for them. And I would explain to Mr. Costanza that there are important factors that we now know that are evidence-based that would encourage people to wear hearing aids at an earlier stage. We know, and we ourselves at UWA have published research on this, and worldwide research confirms it, that when you lose your hearing, you get very tired of asking people to repeat themselves, and you tend to withdraw socially and not participate in conversation. And when you withdraw socially and become more isolated, there is a very strong correlate between the degree of hearing loss and the degree of depression and anxiety. And we know by treating hearing loss, it can assist depression. The other most important thing is that hearing loss is associated with mild cognitive impairment and dementia, particularly of the Alzheimer's form. The uh, Lancet came out with uh, a very important article, the Lancet Commission in 2017, and I'd recommend your listeners to look at it, at some of the preventable factors that are available to us to prevent development of mild cognitive disorder and dementia, Alzheimer's disease. Of course, 60% of the factors or 65% of the factors are not preventative. But 35 to 40% of factors are preventative. Cardiovascular health, exercise, control of hypertension and diabetes. The strongest factor, up to 9% of those factors that can be prevented is hearing loss. And what I would explain to Mr. Costanza is that simple hearing and speech recognition stimulates the cortical brain. And it keeps those pathways open and um, it has been shown to decrease our cognitive load that we have, decrease and improve our executive function. And so that would benefit him long term and I think that's important. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I think most patients and probably a lot of doctors don't realise the kind of broader impact that hearing loss would have on so many other Absolutely, yeah. and we are realising now, now that the problem with hearing loss is it's a silent epidemic. There are billions of people with hearing loss, but unlike eyesight, um, orthopaedic problems, other disfigurements, it's completely invisible. And you can kind of get away with it, but you're actually destroying your own brain and relationships and your future. I think another very important thing when talking to people about hearing aids is that there are three factors, these three crucial factors. The one is 
generally all of us are very vain. We don't want a hearing aid and we don't want to be seen wearing a hearing aid because society kind of looks down on us. It's okay if you put on a pair of spectacles or reading glasses and they're fashion items, but somehow when you put on a hearing aid, people look at you funny. So there's that hurdle that one has to get over. And certainly there are hearing aids that fit deep in the ear that are invisible. And now that there are, he there are hearables and wearables and people are wearing Bluetooth devices in their ears, it's becoming more acceptable. And I think in the future where people will wear hearing aids attached to their glasses together with a radio, smartphone, etc., it'll be easier. The second important thing is that it takes the brain about eight weeks to get used to a hearing aid. We are not used to it. And when you put the hearing aid in, a lot of people reject it immediately. And the third important thing, what I encourage all patients to do, is to have a trial of their hearing aid. Take the hearing aid home and wear it and use it. Because unfortunately with a hearing aid, and this is so important for patients to know, is that hearing aids overpromise and they underdeliver. When you buy a pair of reading glasses or spectacles, you have the you have your, your lenses fitted and they correct your vision perfectly. The only decision you have to make is what color frame, what shape of frame you want. Hearing aids never correct your hearing perfectly. And sometimes they elevate the sounds you don't want and sometimes they're not loud enough. And you need a lot of adjustments to those hearing aids. So a lot of people are very disappointed. And they go out and buy the latest and the greatest and spend an enormous amount of money on it. And they're very disappointed. And some, sometimes a normal Toyota Corolla will do the job and you don't have to go out and buy an S-Class Mercedes in terms of a hearing aid. And I think that's what's important. It's really important to manage their expectations. And Absolutely, yeah. and there's a lot of sales talk out there. Hearing aids are expensive, and um, hearing aid practitioners would like to prescribe hearing aid for good reasons, but sometimes um, patients of people are buying hearing aids that are of a sophistication they don't really use or need. To close out this case, Mr. Costanza has been fitted for some hearing aids and with the appropriate patient education and counselling, he has persevered with the initial adjustment period. Uh, now he's wearing his hearing aids a lot and he's doing really well. To sum up, do you have any key takeaways you would like our listeners to remember about presbycusis or noise exposure or hearing loss in general? Presbycusis and wear and tear of our hearing is the commonest cause of hearing loss worldwide. And the sad thing is that every single person in the world develops it at a certain age. None of us are immune. And so I think we need to have a paradigm shift in terms of our approach to hearing loss and be more accepting of people who've got hearing loss, be more aware of it, um, be more understanding of the difficulties they've got and approach our patients about it initiate this conversation with patients and support them on their journey. Do you have any personal experience with hearing loss? Yes, I do. Um, it's kind of not fair that an ENT should have hearing loss, 
But I think all of us who do um, ear surgery um, and who drill the mastoid and do cochlear implants and middle ear implants are exposed to an enormous amount of noise in theater, as are many surgeons with the suctions and the, the um, various machinery that we do. And I discovered recently that I've got noise-induced hearing loss, which has affected me with background noise. And um, I've had a trial of in-the-ear hearing aids, which I must say um, are very useful at times, but very frustrating. But I think, as I've said to you before, no one is immune from hearing loss, even if you're an ENT. So I think some of our medical students would be interested to hear that you can have noise exposure related hearing loss from uh, from operating theatre. Is there any protection that surgeons wear? I've never seen, I've never noticed it. Absolutely, and I've never noticed it either. Orthopaedic surgeons who do a lot of drilling and putting in of plates, no one wears um, hearing protection. I now wear hearing protection when I do uh, drilling and cochlear implants, but it's exceptionally difficult to hear. You know, uh, all the staff are wearing masks, and so you can't read lips. Um, people are not always facing you. The anaesthetic machine makes an enormous amount of noise, as does the suction machines and various of the other machines. So it's a topic and an area that no one has really ever investigated, and perhaps a good um, area of research for the future. Professor Friedland, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you providing your valuable knowledge and time so that myself and the listeners uh, can have a better understanding of this topic and a useful approach in the future when we're junior doctors. It's such a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on today's episode of MedTalk. We hope that you have found it interesting as well as useful for your studies. If you would like episode summaries as well as information on our other episodes, please head to our website at medtalkpod.com.